Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, December 14th. We begin with an update on the current state of COVID-19 in Canada and look back at the effectiveness of quarantine travel rules during the early stages of the pandemic. We speak with Abigail Beeman, guest host of this week's The West Block and Global News Ottawa correspondent. Women's shelters across the province have seen a decrease in admissions over the past 20 months, but the decline doesn't give an accurate depiction of the ongoing issue of domestic violence in Alberta. We get an explanation of the somewhat misleading stats from Jan Reimer, Executive Director of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. Are you nervous about not having enough money for Christmas or spending more than you should? We get some tips on holiday budgeting and dealing with the financial stress of the holidays from Jeremy Clark, President and CEO of CH Financial. And finally, do you have a gamer on your Christmas list? If so, it can be quite daunting choosing the perfect game. Well, we've enlisted some help. Our gadget guy, Mike Yanni, joins us to offer up some suggestions that are a good fit for the whole family. The Public Health Agency of Canada does not know whether 75% of air arrivals followed quarantine rules in early 2021. That's according to the findings of the Auditor, Auditor General. And with more information, we're joined this week by the guest host of the West Block and Global News Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman. Good morning to you, Abigail. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. It's, it's interesting because we try our best to follow the rules. So why wasn't the Public Health Agency of Canada able to enforce quarantine rules in early 2021? You know what, I think that's a question on a lot of people's minds. It's very frustrating for people who followed all these these, these long list of rules, ever-changing rules, still changing now. Uh, and, and to see that number, that, that you know, 75% of people the public health agency wasn't able to keep track of is just uh, incredibly frustrating. Another number that stood out from that report uh, is that 14% of people who tested positive the public health agency wasn't following up to make sure that they were isolating properly. So for all those people who were traveling for, for whatever reason and, you know, stuck to that at the time, 14-day uh, quarantine, followed all the rules, tested negative multiple times, still were sitting in their houses to hear that there were people who actually tested positive, the whole point of the program, you know, who, what this was trying to catch or prevent, and to hear that the public health agency wasn't following up, I think, uh, really raise, raises a lot of eyebrows, to put yeah, it mildly. You're not kidding. Now, Omicron obviously forcing reinstatement of some travel rules and as we know you know trying to be very diligent not allowing this to get into the country it's already here but can we stop it a little bit further so you would think restrictions would be uh, greater and better enforced do we know if they are that's a really good question. What we did hear in response to that report was the health minister coming out and saying that you know he's committed to immediately improving communications is what I took from for, from his promises. So so better information sharing uh, would allow which would allow the public health agency to, to keep track of this. But they weren't really offering any specifics to say, oh, you know, this is the improvement to date, or this is how we've we've kept track of uh, of people today. And to be fair, uh, the 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 auditor general's report, as you mentioned, only looked at that specific period of time and did mention that there had been improvements since. Uh, but I think it's too fresh of a situation now to understand exactly uh, how the, the, the new travel restrictions, how those are playing out in terms of, 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 of better record keeping. You know, when you talk about, you know, uh, Omicron, and as Sue mentioned, uh, we were focused on travel and, of course, quarantine. Ontario, uh, latest is uh, 1,536 COVID cases, 
31% caused by the Omicron variant. In Alberta, we're seeing 30 cases of Omicron. So at this point, does Canada's response early on when it comes to Omicron go far enough, Abigail? Or are we doing enough? The you know the focus of of the of the guests that we had on this week were were largely looking at border measures that we had uh, on, on the West Block. We had a, an opposition panel, both the health minister and the public safety minister, turned down interview requests to talk about that very question. So I can't bring you those direct answers, but I can certainly tell you that the opposition is saying that the government is not going far enough and and using this this case example of the quarantine hotels and of the the border measures early on uh, to say that we know there are still problems with quarantine hotels and you know we hear these stories of travelers not able to access food not able to get supplies uh as as indicative of of a system where there are still some gaps yeah gaps and obviously the government is learning as it goes still as are all of us but you know what what do we know that the government maybe has learned in terms of enforcing better travel restrictions better rules better being able to see what people are doing once they arrive in canada yeah, exactly. And uh, if you put that to the health minister in the news conference that was held following the auditor general's report, it was all about better communication sharing. So the agency, you know, apparently didn't have the right tools to, to follow up and to track. Uh, there's different, obviously, police services involved. There's different situations province to province. And we saw some provinces that weren't uh, imposing those fines, and it's a, a, a bit of a patchwork across the country. But uh, to ask uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, the health minister, it all seems to come down to better information sharing, which he's committing to improve. Information sharing, and then you look at the uh, largest, uh, you know, undefended border in, in the world between Canada and our neighbors down south. We're not just dealing with flights, we're dealing with, the, you know, travel by road as well. That uh, throws right. a bit of a wrinkle, doesn't it, Abigail? Well, that's the thing, and and that's where there's been a lot of questions here around the new border restrictions only applying to air. So, so the 100% of arrivals uh, only applies to everybody except the United States and is not in place at the land border, obviously. And that has, you know, people on both sides. There are people who think that that uh, doesn't go far enough. There are people who, who don't wish to see more testing at the border. But that is a question uh, that you can be sure the government is tracking uh, as we see the development of these Omicron cases and as the ministers are first to say as they watch what's happening south of the border mm-hmm. in terms of uh, the United States and, and what happens with community spread there. Thanks so much for the update Abigail. Have a great day. Appreciate your time. You too. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa correspondent. And you look at this Sue, I mean we're 11 days away from Christmas. Hindsight uh, is twenty twenty. We know what can happen mm-hmm. with the borders. And also, while we don't know much about Omicron itself, so there is the issue. We will be getting that after afternoon update from Premier Jason Kenney. All signs are pointing, you know, you and I have a, I, I believe that we should keep it status quo. I think that the government will be offering up some ease of restrictions. So I don't know. I mean, you look at... <laughs> You go back to June and what short memories we, when I say we, perhaps you're on the same school of thought that I'm on, that we got to stay the line and get past a busy holiday season where gathering is going to happen. We look what happened in June. Cases were, were down. We saw the curve mm-hmm. being flattened. 
we opened up, and then boom, that fourth wave more powerful than the third wave. Yeah, we celebrated way too soon, and hopefully we've learned our lesson. But as you're hearing in Brenda's news this morning, the province is going to be giving out those free rapid tests to any Albertan that wants one before the holidays. So we're expecting to hear that today. Premier Kenny is going to speak. It's another announcement or a meeting of this COVID committee. They met last week. So have they decided to open things up a bit? Or has what's been happening across Canada and in the United States States, but if you just look here in Canada, has that changed their minds to think maybe it's not time to relax anything and and we just sort of leave it status quo? I mean, we're seeing the number of Omicron cases continue to rise in Ontario and Quebec, just the number of COVID cases really increasing. We don't need that here. We got it under control quite nicely. We got the hospital numbers under control, but we can't afford to let that go again. No, we can't. And you look back and you have to know where you've been to know and compare where we're at today. The update yesterday uh, stated 863 COVID cases over the weekend. So that's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. 863 sounds like a lot, Mm -hmm. but you consider that uh, back six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, we had 2,000 cases a day. Yep. So, you know, uh, on average, these cases here were about uh, 202 to about 373 cases over a three-day period each day, and the positivity rate 3.5 to 4.4%. So we'll throw it out there, and again, it's speculation. What do you think the Premier should do this afternoon? What do you think should do, and what do you think will Will do? Because I think those two things may be very different. Yeah, there you have it. And while calls and admissions to women's shelters across the province are down in comparison to pre-pandemic years, this does not mean domestic violence rates have decreased. That is according to a new report from the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. And here to get us a bit of a clearer picture of the realities of domestic violence in our province is Jan Reimer, Alberta Council of Women's Shelters Executive Director. Good morning to you, Jan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about this this report. Exactly what were you looking for and what were some of the main takeaways? Well, we were just trying to see what was the impact of um, the pandemic on shelters. And every year we do an annual report back to the community, just letting them know what's happening within our sector and the work that shelters are doing. Um, And it was really quite interesting because uh, throughout the pandemic, as a you know, we, we went and each wave uh, came along. That's when we generally saw calls and admissions go down. And then as things loosened up again, uh, calls and admissions uh, went up as the COVID rates went down. Um, and uh, each, each time, um, as people, I think, became uh, more used to what was happening in COVID, um, you know, uh, there were increasing levels of, of requests both for admission and um also uh, uh, calls. Uh, we also saw outreach going up um, over yes. this last year, and I think that's encouraging. Uh, people, I think, generally heard the message, stay home, stay safe. Um, and so the demand for outreach was there for those who, who really uh, needed it and wanted it. And so I think that was the, another thing that, was, that we gleaned from the information. Jan, you know, if, you can, if we can take a step back and go to the beginning and uh, maybe the early days of the pandemic, how did COVID change the way shelters operate? And is that any of those changes still in place when it comes to the shelters and their day-to-day operations? Oh, it was a big change, I think, for many. You know, the public health measures, shelter directors are telling us not only they have to be aware of domestic violence issues and responses to those, they had to become um, experts in public health measures uh, with not a lot of guidance related to 
what actually women's shelters needed uh, during a pandemic. So it was kind of, uh, you know, trying to do the best you can and always exceeding uh, public health guidelines in many cases. Uh, the challenges that shelters saw were, you know, on many levels. Uh, one being just um, having to reduce their capacity overall, which again affected admissions because if you have to close down bedrooms because of public health requirements or because you have an outbreak in the shelter or because staff are isolating or women are isolating or there's been an exposure, all of those things played into uh, responding to uh, domestic violence as we you know, experienced the pandemic. So, Jan, I mean, common sense would tell us women being in close quarters with partners would lead to, you know, partners, obviously, where they have the, these kind of relationships that w- where abuse happens. That would happen in these circumstances where we have COVID and people are sort of sheltering in place, if you were, or working from home, whatever the situation might be. So what is holding back these women who are in crisis from leaving during the pandemic and accessing the shelters? Our sense from the women that, uh, you know, shelter staff have talked to and just from, you know, some of the calls that they get is it's really hard to even reach out and get help. Um, You know, we've had stories of women, you know, hiding in closets trying to use their cell phone or going for a walk um, because isolation is a a well-known tactic by abusers. And so it really played into their hands in terms of using that as a tactic of uh, power and control as part of, um, you know, their abuse. Um, and then I think there was also the fear of um, of the pandemic itself and its impact on children. Uh, one of the other big learnings we've had is how a valuable second stage was in, in a pandemic as opposed to an emergency shelter. Second stage shelters provide uh, self-contained apartments as well as the high security, mm-hmm. whereas uh, emergency shelters are more of a communal living environment. And so the public health measures were more you know, they impacted the um, emergency shelters to a greater extent. And women felt more confident and safe, I think, going into second stage. And we actually had incidents of women calling second stage shelters directly to get in rather than accessing them through emergency shelters. Speaking with Jan Reimer, Executive Director, Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. And Jan, I'm wondering, you know, within the title, the Alberta Council, you know, when we look at the entire province, were certain pockets harder hit when it came to these shelters and had more challenges, or is this across the entire province? Are we talking about the, the an even spread of, of the issues? Oh, that's that's a good question because different shelters are, you know, they're unique in their community, so there are unique challenges. And, you know, there may be some cases where admissions actually went up and other cases where they went down substantively. Um, but overall, I think that all shelters... Um, you know, saw challenges in terms of uh, meeting the needs that were there, the challenges of isolation, um, the reduced capacity and public health uh, restrictions. There's also, you know, staffing uh, challenges because if women had to stay home and look after their children or had to isolate themselves, they couldn't have the full staff coverage um, that uh, they needed. And then I think all shelters are struggling in terms of the financial shortfalls that were caused by the loss of fundraised dollars. You know, usually shelters have big events and they raise lots of money for shelters. Um, and shelters really do need, um, you know, that funding to keep their doors open. Huh? They greatly depend on community financial support to provide the services that they do. So a lot of different ways they were the same and then in other ways they were different. 
Jan, so many factors I know, but what do we need to do and what do we need to do better to help address domestic violence, particularly as we move through this pandemic? Well, I think first and foremost, it's know the signs and understand what it is. Uh, often it's minimized or uh, sloughed off. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of systems really don't yet understand uh, the dynamics of domestic violence. So it's really to learn about it and know what those signs are. Um, I think in the longer term, we've really got to look at, you know, how do we build a robust uh, shelter system as opposed to one that we expect constantly be resilient and respond to whatever may come their way um, in terms of both uh, building plans. Many of our uh, members have aging um, shelters um, that, you know, have problems with all sorts of different things, let alone the environmental challenges that we're also going to be seeing coming down the floor. So the whole design of shelters is another big piece. Um, and I think the other is just uh, simply to... Um, you know, if you know, everybody knows somebody who's been exposed to domestic violence. They just may not be aware of it. Right. So make sure that women are aware of the resources. Um, you know, encourage women to reach out to them. Um, believe her. Um, often, you know, that people say, oh, you're imagining things. And for women themselves to know it's not their fault. Jan, thank you so much for your time this morning. A very complex issue in a very complex time. Uh, we appreciate you uh, joining us this morning. Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving attention to the issue as well. That is Jan Reimer, Executive Director, Alberta Council of Women's Shelters, online at acws.ca. Tis the season for gift-giving, but unfortunately, our hearts can sometimes get ahead of our wallets. The mere thought of Christmas and all the holiday spending it entails can be enough to make your head spin. So to help bring the anxiety down, we're joined this morning by Jeremy Clark, President and CEO at CH Financial. Good morning to you, Jeremy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, you have some tips and tricks to help us avoid overspending. Before we get to those tips and tricks... Jeremy, shouldn't it be common sense to say spend within your limits? <laughs> but it isn't, is it? I, it? True enough. And I think uh, generally speaking, that's, uh, that's always good advice. But I think uh, in this day and age, there's, there's such easy access to credit, which uh, most previous generations haven't had. So people are able to carry forward debt at a pretty low interest rate. But of course, the debt still does pile up, even at a low interest rate, if you're not, if you're not really trying to pay it off. Okay, so help me, Jeremy. I am. Uh, I, I love Christmas. I love giving people gifts at Christmas and spoiling my kids. But how do I do it properly? Well, I think a key people talk about uh, budgets, of course, and it's an easy word to throw around. But I think having an actual budget for holiday spending, uh, most people think about that as December. I would say maybe December, January together. Look at that whole time period and say, what can I afford to spend overall? Um, on gifts for everybody. And then when you look at that, you can kind of carve it up a little bit more to say, okay, um, you know, who's getting which gift? Maybe even group gifts together to get a discount. But having that overall, call it a two-month period of holiday spending in your mind, I think is a really good way to kind of keep a lid on the, on the, on the whole spend. For those folks who've never set a budget around the holidays and holiday spending, Jeremy, uh, where do we start? Do we look at a percentage of our income on a monthly basis, or do we simply start attributing numbers on a, on a sheet? 
I think it's probably a good idea to, to on a monthly basis, save a little bit for a, a gift fund. Let's call it a holiday gift fund. And it's, it's the easiest thing to do is always to save a little bit of each paycheck, as opposed to saying, um, I don't really have a plan, and now the holidays are upon me. And it becomes pretty overwhelming um, if you're trying to sort of budget after the fact. So obviously, even a little bit of planning ahead of time is, is, uh, is the way to go. Jeremy, do you recommend spending on your credit card or spending cash at Christmas time? Is one better than the other? Cash is always good if you have it, because of course there's no uh, there's no interest on that. But some of the credit cards these days have become a lot more competitive in terms of interest rates. So um, of course there's still a lot that charge that twenty to twenty five percent interest rate, which is which is really punitive. But there are uh, there are some others uh, sometimes linked to a savings account which which have a lower rate of interest but cash is always best if you can't do that then a then a lower interest credit card would be the way to go jeremy you can have the knowledge or you can you know really endeavor to get things together before the next holiday and i mean we're talking days away now really uh but it is a team sport when it comes <laughs> to the holidays and if your spouse isn't on the same page, that can be difficult. So how important is it having a conversation with your spouse or anybody involved in the spending process in your house? Yeah, that's really important. And my whole career, I don't think I've ever seen two spouses who have similar views on spending, or very rarely. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really important to not not seem like you're kind of boxing your spouse in, because usually one would like to spend more than the other. But to say, you know, what do we we like to spend overall? Let's make it a team effort, Andrew, like you said, as opposed to one person criticizing the other. But it's really important um, to be on the same page as much as possible. Because, of course, once you're you're a married couple or in a partnership uh, situation, a lot of your debt becomes linked. So whether you like it or not, the the more uh, thrifty spouse is tied to the more spendthrift spouse, so to speak. Great ideas, great tips and tricks. We appreciate your time this morning, Jeremy. Have a wonderful Christmas, and and thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Jeremy Clark, President and CEO at CH Financial. I would say it's pretty safe to say most people in this world have a gamer in their family, be it a kid or an adult, and video games continue to be a must-have gift over the holidays, but you don't want to buy the wrong one. And that's why gadget guy Mike Yanni is joining us this morning to talk about the must-have games for this holiday so you don't disappoint your teens or anyone else in your life. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. Yeah, video games, they make great gifts because they're always in stock. Even if they're sold out in stores, you can go online and download them right to the console so you don't have to disappoint by not getting that latest and greatest game. I wanted to do something different, though. I want to focus on big hits Mm -hmm. that are family-friendly, so no swearing, no gore, so... Grandma doesn't lose her dentures when she walks into the room and sees the game she bought her grandkids. Well, there's that. Yeah, so I think that's good. We, we've got to look at these, and, and let's break down. And I know that you're going to have the different types of gaming systems as well represented. So where do you want to start? Yeah, let's start with this. Uh, it Takes Two. This is for PlayStation and Xbox. This is an interesting game because it's, it's such a weird premise. It does not sound like it would make a great game. A little girl's parents are divorcing. She overhears what's happening and begins to cry. So her tears fall on two little dolls she's playing with, and somehow her parents get trapped into the dolls. You play as the parents, the dolls, trying to get your daughter's attention. So this is very Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Mm, So the parents have to work together to get to their daughter, overcoming obstacles, so see where this is going, work together, rebuild the relationship. A really fun game because it has amazing creative environments like, you know, going through the yard, the garden shed, you ride frogs at one point, you fight a giant vacuum. But what's interesting is you have to play with two players. You have to play with a friend or a family member. 
So it is team building as you're playing. And of course, in the game, you're also building the team. Uh, so this game was a lot of fun. Okay, cool. I like that. How about this one? Is it Forza Horizon 5? Is that how you say Forza. it? Forza. Yeah, Forza Horizon 5. I never thought I'd put a game like this on the list. I'm not a huge racing fan, but this is unlike any racing game you've played. It takes part in a racing festival in Mexico. It's open world, so you drive along a huge map of Mexico and unlock these races. But not typical races. Sometimes you're racing through sandstorms or racing vehicles against planes, uh, challenging stuff. Uh, and pulling off weird, crazy stunts, and amazing licensed music by artists like the Beastie Boys and new artists that the kids are going to know. Super fast. You can play this for days and never do the same thing twice. I love the name of this one because I always have such fun inventive names. This next game is going to be called Metroid Dread. Yeah, this is for the Switch. Do you guys, have you heard of Metroid before? No, mm-hmm. I haven't. Okay, classic franchise has been around since the original NES. So it's been around for many years, but they keep reinventing this, this franchise to make it fresh. So you're exploring a planet in search of these Metroid parasites that were thought to be wiped out, but are they really gone? It's a mix of exploration and action, but Metroid's always been known for these exploring and tons of secrets, and this one does not disappoint. And it gets the adrenaline going because you're constantly being chased by these tiny robotic, almost like the Boston Dynamic Dogs. Great game, and it's a huge hit for the Switch this holiday season. Okay, you can't forget Halo Infinite. This one, obviously, is going to be a biggie this year, too. It, it is, but it's kind of surprising because a lot of fans were on the fence about this one. It's been talked about for years. It was delayed by a couple of years. Fans didn't know if this was going to be good, and it's not good. It's actually incredible. Like, this is an amazing game. He plays Master Chief, uh, space-based run-and-gun type. You're killing aliens, but no real blood or guts. No bad language. It's pretty rare for some of these games. Uh, you're basically trying to save the human race from the alien known as the Banished. Sixth game in the franchise, but you don't have to play the other games on the list uh, or you know that came before this. Uh, but what's new is this is the first time Halo's got open world, so it's kind of a reimagining of Halo, and it totally pays off. This is a, this is a must-have for anyone who likes the running gunners. And I just want to point out one quick thing before we go, probably out of time here, but um, this game is free with Xbox Game Pass. Mm. So Xbox Game Pass and PlayStation Now, they are basically like Netflix for console games now. So you pay a monthly fee and you get hundreds of games available to you every month. It's worth checking out if you want the gift that keeps on giving for sure. Love it when something's included because it doesn't happen too often, Mike. Mm -hmm. And some great family-friendly suggestions. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, as always. That is Mike Yanni. He is the Gadget Guy on Twitter at Gadget underscore Guy. Instagram at Gadget Guy Mike. And on YouTube, find his channel by searching Gadget Guy Mike Yanni. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.